This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Today is March 19th, 2021, and this is another episode in our series on COVID-19 vaccination misinformation. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Marguerite Chagog. She's a family medicine physician. She also provides psychiatric services to her patients. She practices in Northern California and works with underserved populations. Hi, Dr. Chagog. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let's start out a little bit with COVID. What kind of interactions do you have with your patients around COVID-19? So I have a multitude of different interactions. So I'm a full-skill family medicine doctor. So that means I do OB care as well as hospital care, as well as clinic care. In the hospital, I am not usually on the COVID wards, thankfully. Some of our older single people who do not have kids have thankfully taken on that responsibility. So mostly in the ward, I'm just making sure my patients don't have COVID, double checking, and definitely making sure that they don't come up with symptoms while they're there. In the clinic, it's a different situation. There's a lot of screening. There's a lot of testing. There's a lot of communication. One great thing about this whole pandemic is that everyone's using telemedicine now. So I can definitely have telemedicine visits with my patients who have COVID concerning symptoms and walk them through. Should we get tested? Should we not get tested? And then once they are tested, I can actually still follow up and visit with them and see how are they doing and if we feel like they need to escalate care and go to hospitalization. Fortunately, I have not had a ton of COVID positive patients who have needed to be escalated to go to hospitalization, but I've definitely had some who we had to intervene and say, you can't stay home. So it sounds like a lot of the work that you do is oriented towards thinking through patient risks is possibly one way of putting it. It sounds like a lot of your conversations are about screening or prevention. So there's screening, there's prevention, there's treatment. And then being the family medicine doc, there is the other level, which is just information providing. Hey, doc, Should I go travel out of the county and go see my cousin? Oh, if my kid goes back to school, how's this change their risk level? So there's a lot of discussion on informing folks and talking through their specific risks. Do you often speak with patients as an advisor just like this? Do they have more questions as it pertains to COVID as compared to previous years about other kinds of sicknesses as an information source? What is that like? It is crazy. Probably starting last January of 2020 is when almost every visit had a COVID question in it and it has not stopped. Whether it's to when do you think this is going to be over to when do you think I can get the vaccine to do I have to take that vaccine? I don't trust that Trump vaccine. Every single visit has some type of COVID related question which is definitely different than the other thing I think about, we always compare it to is like the flu. Very rarely do I get questions about the flu during flu season. Usually just flu vaccine, yes, no. Once we get past that question, it doesn't come up again. Versus I saw a patient two weeks ago, they asked me questions about COVID. This week, they asked me a question about COVID. And I'm sure when I see them in two more weeks, they're going to still ask me a question about COVID. So thinking about expertise as patients see you as an expert for medical information, I would assume. I hope so. How do you help patients navigate 
the myriad of experts that they see on TV because they might see a emergency doctor on, say, Fox News versus a primary care physician on CNN versus a radiologist at a press conference. So how do you help patients think through this idea of expertise, especially in context of your close relationship with your patients? So that is something that comes up regardless of COVID. I've had to take consults from Dr. Google frequently. Not Dr. Bing? Not Dr. Bing. Dr. Google and Mr. WebMD both give me frequent consults. And then there's always my cousin, aunt, you know, sister. And let's not forget Dr. Oz. Oh, the first thing I always start with is what are the credentials of the person talking to you? Is this actually a infectious disease physician? Who are they? What is the source of the the information? This is your coaching to your patients. This is my coaching to my patients. Okay. So if it is coming from your cousin's aunt's obstetrician, then I'm not going to trust that quite the same amount as say like a Dr. Fauci. Like those are just two different levels. Similarly, I'm not going to trust the emergency room doctor because their focus is very narrow. Their focus is, are you dying? Do you need to be admitted or can I send you home? And what is your risk to other people in my ER? So they have a very narrow focus and very narrow job. I'm not going to take their information the same as I'm going to take the person who is dealing with people on the intensive care unit. So just differing sources. So that's the first thing I ask them. The second thing I tell them about is how informed are your doctors? And and this sounds terrible. We all have continuing medical education that we have to do to stay up to date. Some information, and as you get to be an older doc, it's very easy to rely on your old information rather than taking in that new information. One thing I talk to folks a lot with, and this is a whole nother series that you could talk about, the opioid crisis, where people will say, but my doctor gave me these meds for years. Like, why are you telling me now it's bad? And it's, we have new data. We have new information. We didn't have it back then. So if someone is saying, oh, we can't trust this vaccine because we don't know anything about it. I'm like, But we do now. We have six month data now. We have so much more than we had when this first came out and we were talking about it in November. Look at the timing and looking at the source of information is the other thing I talk to my patients about. So I would say those when I'm coaching my patients on what medical information to trust, look at the source and then look at the timing of the knowledge. And do you find that in taking that kind of information on balance, because if I'm hearing you, it sounds like something like a pandemic where the situation evolves very rapidly, then that kind of dynamic up-to-date quality of a physician is especially valuable and might not be immediately apparent to folks who are just talking to doctors, which doctors are really plugged in and which ones are not. Dealing with a dynamic information situation is just, it's tough no matter yeah. what. Yeah, no, it's hard. Uh, but the, the, the popular read on a lot of this is, well, science and medicine are contradicting themselves. Therefore, I don't have to trust them anymore. Do you get a lot of that? Or is that just stuff that Sean and I see a lot of that makes it to Twitter and other kinds of media outlets? That it, and, and you never actually see that on the ground. So I will say that it's a constant thing in medicine where they'll be like, oh, but things are contradicting themselves. And the thing I relate this most to is obstetrics, because you want to talk about a dynamic situation that changes rapidly. 
We can have a lovely delivery where everything is going fast and things are going great. And then all of a sudden something happens. Medicine always changes. And I think that's one of the things that in lay people, they have a hard time understanding the fact that medicine and science changes always. That means it's working. Right. What used to be true may not be true. There are some things that tend to be true. If you had low thyroid and we didn't take any kind of thyroid supplement, you're going to still have low thyroid. That's always true. But new things like, oh, hey, did you know how much your microbiome affects your diabetes? These are new things that we're coming up with. New ways that we are realizing that medicine is changing. So getting that across to my patients is just a constant struggle. So going back to expertise for just a second, we're all doctors here, right? Except Michael and I aren't those kind of doctors. Yes. So going back to this idea of expertise, I would argue that some lay folks might not have even known that they were infectious disease doctors before the pandemic or might not have been aware of virologists or a range of specialties. So how are people supposed to navigate these specialties that they didn't even know exist. They're like, just like a medical doctor is a medical doctor is a medical doctor, right? And you're right. That's just hard. And that's when you really want people to be talking to their primary care doctor and touching base with them. Now, if your primary care doctor, A, you don't have a great relationship with them because that happens a lot, or B, they don't seem to know what's going on. I and people may come down on me for this, especially some of my colleagues. I think it's okay to push us. It's okay to be like, hey, if you don't have the information, if you don't have the data, please get it. I've used PubMed so many times in the patient room, I can't even tell you. If I don't have it, I look it up. And, I, and that's a part of the continuing education process of medicine. So if you're a patient and you're asking your doc a question and they don't seem to be informed, then it's okay to say, hey, doc, I really need to have this information and you have more resources than me. So can you please get some information and we'll talk about this? That brings a really interesting topic up. PubMed, for those that don't know, is a database of medical research articles that have been peer reviewed. Yes. In the news, we've seen a lot of research articles referenced. Do patients bring that into the room? Because we know some research articles are preprints, meaning they're preliminary and they haven't been reviewed. There could be some problems. They could fly through review. Who knows? But do patients bring this into the room with you? But like this paper says this, so you're wrong, right? It's pretty rare that folks are actually bringing in papers and data. What does happen more commonly is that people will say, hey, I saw this commercial or I saw this advertisement about this medication or Hey, I did this quiz online and it said I might have ADD. Can we talk about it? With something like COVID, do you have people rip stuff from the headlines and say stuff like, I heard that it can spread now or I heard it doesn't spread now? Do they bring in information from secondhand sources rather than primary sources? Always. And a lot of it is the, hey, they keep saying we're going to have a vaccine. Why don't we have it yet? Hey, they said that everything should be open now. Why isn't it open now? Hey, I heard that if you're only wearing a mask, you're only protecting other people. I'm not actually protecting myself. So why should I do that? I've, I hear more of the talking points. Got it. Than the actual articles. The nice thing about those talking points is that we've all heard them and we've all seen them. So it's very easy to have your prepared answer <laughs> to come back at. So 
that's common. So that's for questioning. We're now at the point where we can start having conversations about vaccinations. Mm -hmm. How is that going over right now, now that vaccinations are becoming more and more accessible for COVID-19? So I would say with my most of my primary care patients, the heavy conversations actually happened around November. A lot of the folks were like, I don't trust this vaccine. This got pushed through way too fast. I don't trust it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be honest. I like data and evidence. We only have three months of data. We don't know what's going to do after three months. And so a lot of what I talked to with my patients at that point is, hey, they're doing healthcare workers first. By the time we get to you, we're going to have more information. We're going to have more data. Now, on the flip side, there are the people who are like, I don't trust this. This came out too soon. And most of those are, I'll be honest, folks of color. And I get it. I'm black. I have had and my family members have had very varying non-positive relationships with healthcare today, now in this day and age, not to mention like all of the history of black people in America and healthcare, which was really never created for us. So when it comes to those types of conversations, I'm going to give two different kind of examples. One is it depends on who the listener is. So in my family, we are all super educated. So we can talk about data and hard facts. And similarly for my patients who are college professors and folks like that, we can talk about data and evidence and we can say, okay, look, there's been data on mRNA vaccines. They've actually been working on this for the last 10 years. So even though this is the first one, this has been a technology that's been in the works for a long time. It actually looks because you're actually using your own body to make it, there are lower chances of negative outcomes and allergic reactions and things like that. And then also just looking at the simple fact of what's the risk of actually getting COVID-19 versus the risk of this vaccine. With my super highly educated folks, we can walk down that path. Now, with my folks who are not super educated or for some reason they don't want to hear it, the conversation goes to a different place. I really talk about barriers. What is your barrier? Why is this so negative to you? And if the barrier is just, I don't like vaccines, I don't trust vaccines, then, you know, then we just have to talk about why they don't trust or like vaccines from that larger standpoint. When you hear people say that they don't trust vaccines, what are some of the reasons? Oh, my goodness. Every day. I love Oprah. I love Lady Oprah. She is our lady of the O, but I will also curse her name every day for giving freaking Jenny McCarthy a platform to start this whole anti-vaxxer ridiculousness. So people talk about, oh, there's mercury in it. There's heavy metals in it. We're giving them so many vaccines. Why do we need so many vaccines? Isn't just getting the disease, giving your body its own natural immunity better? Isn't that a healthier way to do it? It's more natural. The preservatives in the vaccines, those are such a problem and they're going to interact with my body. I'm going to get the, the disease if I get the vaccine. All of the things that we've heard a million. Have any patients come to you with 
QAnon slash pandemic style concerns. Like, for example, Bill Gates is putting microchips in the virus, or do they cite pandemic and saying that it should be natural. We need to put our toes in the sand and go by the ocean and that will naturally heal our bodies. And by putting on a mask and using a vaccine or taking a vaccine, it actually decreases our immunity. Do you ever hear any of that? Or is that just something we see in social media? So I get a little bit of that, not a ton. The majority of folks know that is ridiculous, but there are some who are like, doesn't it make my immunity weaker to take a vaccine? I hear that pretty commonly. And so that's just doctor means to teach. So it just goes back to that understanding of while you might feel like oh, I got the flu vaccine and then I got a cold and I got the flu. It just goes to the education point of that's actually your immunity ramping up and increasing and fighting. And it's not actually a sign of you being actively ill. So for these patients, what does your relationship look like? Are you describing patients that you've had a long history with? So I've actually getting a lot of new patients recently. So it's a mixture of both. And I cross cover for my other colleagues' patients as well. So it's always a mixture of folks who I've seen and had long conversations with. That's why I can tell you like, oh, we had a conversation in November about the COVID vaccine. And then we talked in January about the COVID vaccine. And then now that it's March, my patient's like, okay, I'm ready to take that vaccine. Versus I've had folks who I'm seeing them and one of my colleagues, never met them before, but they're like, oh, hey doc, I heard that what we really need to do is actually just go get the virus and then this will be over. And I can say, yes, that is true. We can all get the virus and then it will be over. But how much loss of life are you willing to tolerate to do that? When it comes to thinking through some of these notions and conceptions, so in your accounts of your conversations with your patients, it sounds like there's lots of information knocking around in all kinds of places. Sean and I, encounter a lot of things that are on the extreme position, like finding a microchip in your arm or something like that. And I tried to make a viral TikTok video where I took my Band-Aid off and there was a SIM card underneath it, but Sean wouldn't (laughs) let me post it. No, not going to happen. Nope. (laughs) So it sounds though that there's still some unreliable information making it to people and influencing them enough to be not anti-vax, but vaccine hesitant. Absolutely. These ideas about it being not natural, these ideas being that it's not trustworthy, it didn't go through the steps. You mentioned Oprah. What do you think are the primary channels where people tend to pick up information like this that you wish that they would reform after this in terms of negative influences that that you regret a little Mm. bit? What do those look like? So I regret Fox News every day of my life that it exists in any way, shape or form. And the funny thing about it is because of that, It just seeps into everything. Once they say it, then someone else has to go and talk about it. And then someone else's posts about it. And so it it just becomes ubiquitous. So that I think is one huge negative influence. When 45 was talking, that Mm. was huge because again, as the president, he got aired on all of the things. So That got around everywhere. So lots of talk from that. It's actually amazing since he has no longer has the same platform that he had, how much fewer of his talking points I'm hearing from my patients. And not just from Fox News, it's from him being like in the ether. So 
Yeah, we've observed almost a call and response between more mainstream outlets for information and some of the fringe corners of the internet. And they bounce back to one another, but then you can really trip that circuit Mm -hmm. by removing a key entity. Yes. Um, And, you know, when it comes to positive influences on it, you, you had mentioned Dr. Google being one of those things that feels like a mixed bag. But what are some positive influences on people being informed or good sources of information that you've observed people taking up? So one that I have been amazed at, Fauci, as calm and as glasses wearing as he is, he's been amazing at getting his face and his name out there. Trevor Noah with The Daily Show has been doing some amazing work literally on a daily basis talking about COVID-19, getting the data and the facts out there in a humorous way that people can accept. One that really surprised me, the Try Guys on YouTube. They like had an interview with Fauci. They've had so many positive, like repeated talking about COVID and social distancing and the importance of doing so and just being really great examples. And I have to say on our social media, like YouTube, a lot of YouTubers have been really making a point to say this video was done with everyone vaccinated. Looking at recent concerts and things like that and performances where the tiny desk concerts that people are doing at their homes, where everyone is six feet away wearing masks, those images I feel are just lovely, strong reinforcers of this isn't just you in your daily life going to your grocery store, going to your Petco. This is stuff that Dua Lipa is doing with her dancers on the stage where they're all dancing six feet apart and the dancers have matching rhinestone masks. Like, it's been impressive. I asked this question out of ignorance and curiosity, not rhetorically to say that we're in a distinct moment in history. It sounds like we have public health celebrities. Like some people are public health officials who are celebrities and some celebrities who are becoming kind of de facto mouthpieces for reliable public health information. I'm trying to think of the last time those things happen. I don't know if they have happened. I'm going to be honest. I don't know if that has happened before. If our podcast had a research staff, they would be Googling that right now. So yeah. they have some snappy answers and conclusions. But because we don't, we can just leave it as an interesting question. Public health is becoming sexy in a way. Is that fair enough to say? It's becoming way sexier. And I think part of it is because of the pandemic. So if we think about times before when public health has been successful, like when the swine flu came out, that was the last time that there was a big major new virus that was sweeping. The swine flu actually got really under wraps and it was really taken care of relatively safely. And remember what happened is everyone's like, oh, this was so overblown. I don't know why they kept making me like take my temperature before I went into the hospital. And oh, I had to go get my swine flu vaccine. Ugh, it got so overblown. And the reason why was because it was controlled. So public health only gets sexy when we're actually in distress. When public health is working and people are all safe, it's no longer sexy. It's like infrastructure. Everyone is all excited about infrastructure when you know, you're in Texas and you're freezing. But when you're like, hey, let's winterize the lines. Everyone's oh, why? It's summer. Yeah, I got the swine flu. And at the time, it felt like being part of another world. 
to walk into the clinic, be triaged for swine flu, have somebody put a mask on your face and make you go stand in a very special part of the clinic, be seen by physicians that were only seeing patients just like you, and then to be ordered to quarantine in your home for a certain period of time completely alone. That felt like a complete overreach and Mm -hmm. completely unnecessary because I had no idea what was going on and I knew nothing. But to your point, it felt almost comical. Yeah. But in retrospect, I was grateful for it. And nowadays, instead of feeling like, oh, this is completely out of hand, now we're begging people to do this kind of masking and quarantining rather than feeling like it's some kind of overreach. Like, I will say there are a few good things that came out of this pandemic. One of them is telemedicine and Zoom meetings because now everyone can meet and we can meet safely and more conveniently. I would say the second thing is people recognize when you're sick, you should stay home, you know, that it's okay to wear a mask. And these are things that we in the health field would often do. If you were wearing a mask around the clinic and people would be like, oh, what's going on? Oh, you have a cold? Like there was definitely a stigma around wearing masks previously, where now it's recognized as, yes, this is a safety measure. This is a reasonable and appropriate thing to do. Just like staying home when you're sick. And I'm glad that everyone has finally learned to wash their hands. The masks have become a fashion item. You mentioned rhinestone masks, Louis Vuitton's making masks. So it's not just a paper mask anymore. Again, it's become sexy to wear a mask. Yes. And we definitely have, like my family, we all have these lovely rainbow masks that coordinate. My husband has like rainbow suspenders that he wears with his rainbow mask. Like it is definitely another moment of expression. Although I do know everyone who wears lipstick is very sad. The mask thing is really interesting because the different focal points around which people have to make decisions based on information that come from heterogeneous sources with the pandemic is really interesting because masks became, for all kinds of reasons, a focal point. They became this contested object where not only is it will they work or will they won't, but they're like a prelude to the vaccine conversation is that we're also hung up on what kind of mask? What are its qualities? How do we know it's a good one? So then on the in a bad scenario, you've got someone holding their t-shirt over their nose, thinking that it's fine. And then on the extreme side, you've got people wearing respirators that don't protect the people around them. It, it feels like there are so many decisions that anybody has to make on a given day of their life anymore because of the pandemic conditions. What are often some deciding factors for them? When you think about trying to convince somebody to do one thing or another? What are the appeals that work? Are people like ultimately when you talk to them, are they just at bottom, like very rational and do they accept these appeals to reason? Um, And the viewers can't see you laughing right now. What works in helping people sort out all of these daily exhausting decisions that involve a lot of different information where the objects that the decisions are based around are really contested? So to the mass point and I'll talk about the mask specifically and then just like all these little pieces in general. To the mask point, I would say the most interesting thing is the part that I have very little empathy for. Is there like, oh, but it feels like I can't breathe and that and the other. And I'm like, I've been in surgeries, y'all. You know that in surgeries, we wear masks for hours. Hours. I've worn masks for days and I think bringing it to the concept of, hey, if you're at home, 
if you're outside and you're not with other people in your six feet, it's okay not to wear a mask. But if you are going to be in close contact, if you're going to be inside, you can wear a mask for a half an hour at the grocery store. You can wear a mask for 15 minutes while you're doing this errand. You don't have to worry about wearing a mask for 12 hours while you're in the OR in gowns and sweating and you can't touch your face. So there's that part. And then to the types of mask, again, I talked to each patient about what their specific risk factors are. So if this is a patient who is a teacher and they are now going back to school with children and the teacher is vaccinated, but the children are not, or let's go back to November because some schools were trying to open up in November and they were seeing kids in the classroom or doing this kind of weird double thing and teachers were not vaccinated and kids were not vaccinated. Then I would talk to them about having a medical grade filtering mask. Does it need to be an N95? Does it need to be that kind of high level? Not necessarily, but you want something that's going to be more than a T-shirt. So there's that level. I talk to each patient about their individual risk. Now, if this is a, you know, 55 year old person who's working from home and they're just going to the grocery store and coming back, then you want a good mask that you can't see through. If you hold it up to the light, you can see through it. It's not great. Hold up the light. You can't see through it. Probably good to go. That's fascinating. And people respond well to that approach. Yeah. Medicine is all about that individual patient. So the more specific you can get about their risks, the easier it is for them to say, okay, this is what works for me. Now that may not work for my cousin, my nephew, those other folks. And I tell them, you can't necessarily apply this to every person in your circle. But for you, this is what we can do for you in your situation. So often we talk about misinformation as taking advantage of different kinds of vulnerabilities or openings. And one major opening is this uncertainty. And in hearing how you talk to patients on an individual level and help them think through and assess their risk and then decide what types of protection they need, you're helping them to decrease their level of uncertainty. But what would you say potentially for people who don't have someone like you in their lives? So if you don't have someone to talk through the risks with and you're trying to decide, okay, what mask should I get? There is a pretty good public health information giver out there called the CDC. And they give us all recommendations that are good for the general person. And not everyone has the experiences where I have where like I went to Emory. So the CDC was on my campus so I could go there and see it and have the understanding of what the CDC is. For most folks, it's just letters. It's a place in the walking dead. I know that. Oh, uh, yes, it is a place in the walking dead. That blew up. Yeah, they blew it up. Kaboom. Yeah. yeah. That's the extent of my in-person experience with the CDC. But there's so much knowledge and caution and you want to talk about peer reviewed heavily edited like the things that they put out are so rigorously evaluated that is what i tell folks to go off of that the point you just made is is really interesting in that i think most people don't appreciate exactly what peer review means but then how rigorously peer reviewed cdc materials are like sean was saying the kind of more general and larger and inaccessible the institution 
then the harder it is to trust it or the less you know about. And that sows this doubt or uncertainty. And that's a great time to be misinformed. But what you're saying is something that was directly under assault by certain misinformation campaigns, which is the credibility of the CDC. Mm. But it strikes me that where you have a lot of folks thinking about misinformation research about ways to inoculate people against misinformation, looking for specific lessons you can teach them or fact-checking routines that they can go through. It sounds like knowledge of some of the key institutions that are leadership in a given situation and that increasing knowledge about these things would really help if at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a three-hour yes. PBS special yes. on how does the CDC offer guidance to people? Let's take something like that. Seems like it would have meant a lot. Who am I to, who am I to say one way or the other? But I, I really appreciate you calling attention to the rigor behind what goes through the CDC, because I think even if you're someone who watches cable news all the time or watches news YouTube all the time, that fact, the rigor of the CDC, to me, this is the first time I've heard an expert call attention to it. Even Dr. Fauci, who it feels like every time he's on television is defending other points, but defending the honor of the CDC in terms of its integrity, that is a really interesting perspective in this whole misinformation landscape around COVID-19 vaccines and masking. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many people are like, oh, went through the FDA, but how can we trust the FDA? Because it's so underfunded and they're just, you know, bowing to the whims of the farming industry and like all this other stuff. So I completely agree with some of those very key institutions which have been in a kind of a gray light up to now where they have all this rule over our life. But what does that even mean? But yeah, no, the CDC is highly trusted. I dig it. I, I wonder if there was like a YouTube series that was 45 minutes because no one's watching three hours of anything anymore. Maybe we all would because we're just home from pandemic, but you might have to have the Tiger King in it. No, we've just invented a new How Stuff Works series. Only it's about bureaucracy and government. Exactly. Just a new Netflix series that we can all binge. Yeah, looking yes. forward to the 15 subscribers. Uh, for that. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> Netflix, if you're listening, we have a show idea for you. So I want to ask you a little bit about the difference between vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccination. Mm -hmm. What do those two terms mean to you? Do you see a difference between them? And is that difference really important? Because on the news at this moment in time, we hear a lot of discussions about vaccine hesitancy. We don't hear a lot of discussions about anti-vaxxers. How do you see those two terms playing out? So those are completely different folks. So you're Vaccine hesitant people are the people where they come into the office. Let's use the one that we all know about the flu. They come into the office. You're like, hey, it's flu season. You should get your flu shot. You're here. They're like, oh, doc, I hate getting the flu shot. It hurts. My arm hurts. And I heard that was only 50 percent effective this year anyway. And that means that you're not going to be sick in bed for two whole weeks if you get the flu. You might only have one week. So that's one week less that you're going to be in bed, sick, not being able to move with high fevers, and you'll actually be able to get up and go to work and do this and that. And they're like, oh, OK, so that's vaccine hesitancy. They have reservations, but we can have a conversation about what those barriers are. Anti-vaxxers are people who are actively against the concept of putting any other materials into your body other than the virus or bacteria itself to generate immunity. Those are the anti-vaxxers. 
They are the ones who say there is no other way you can do this other than getting the virus naturally. And by actively putting other things in your body to generate immunity, you are causing more harm than good. And that is a whole different level and a whole different conversation, because then you have to go to the this again. All I do all day is talk about risks. So what are the risks of you getting chicken pox versus getting the chicken pox vaccine? Chicken pox sucks. It sucks more as you get older. Okay. If you don't want to get the chicken pox vaccine and you are willing to get the chicken pox and possibly have shingles, which could give you a neurological disease as you get older that continues and risk that. Okay. That's fine. Now, that is a risk that you are willing to take. Now, if we're talking about something as, you know, severe as giving your kid a pertussis, the whooping cough vaccine, where we know that children have died, infants have died from their grandparents having a low level of infection. They come over to see the new baby. Oh, new baby. Now new baby has whooping cough because they don't have the immunity and they die. That's a different level to me because that is literally life and death. And so that particular anti-vaxxer, we might have a discussion about specific vaccines. Similar to COVID-19, what are the risks and benefits of getting COVID-19 versus getting the vaccine when it's available to you? If you are willing, if you are willing to take the risk, knowing that even as a relatively young, healthy person, you could end up on a ventilator and have lifelong repercussions. We're still repercussions of diabetes, I say, because we've now found that people who had COVID-19 are now having higher rates of diabetes. They're having higher rates of heart disease. They're having higher rates of all of these vessel diseases because COVID-19 attacks the vessels and giving you long lasting ramifications. So is that a risk that you are willing to take knowledgeably? knowing that this is a possibility. That's fascinating. Something that Sean and I talk about too is just what the value of misinformation is for people who internalize it and make decisions based on it. Like all beliefs, people have some capability to choose them. And so what is the value that you observe to people who are anti-vax? What benefit do they receive by being so vaccine avoidant, by spreading this kind of information about medical institutions, what's in it for them? So uh, the ones I've met, a lot of them are, one, they're promoting natural life, natural, being more natural, that these things are unnatural. And sometimes I'm like, pediatric death is natural too. Kids used to die all the time. That's why people would have a dozen kids because about half of them would die. So one of it is being natural. Another one is going against big pharma. It's like, oh, you get paid for every time I get. I don't get paid for nothing, folks. I'm a family medicine doc. We don't get paid. We do it out of the charity of our hearts. Okay, I do get paid. That's a whole other discussion. There's not a fresh envelope of 20s under your door every time you give a prescription. Exactly. Exactly. The concept that we are getting some kind of kickback 
or we're getting some kind of benefit from the pharmaceutical companies. We don't even have samples in our office because of the bias that we know that having samples in your office give you. So that's one of those things that they're like, oh, I'm going to stick it to the man. I'm not going to get vaccined because that's just a thing for big pharma. And then there are those people who hold beliefs that seem ludicrous as, well, if I do this, then I will have a tracking device implanted in my body that will follow me around for the rest of my life. Called your cell phone. And then a lot of people who are like, but I want it to be natural. And then I'm like, but you're smoking. Like there are people who are anti-vax, but they will smoke cigarettes. And I'm like, you're putting foreign substances into your body. Don't you don't see? But it's a whole different conversation. And a lot of those folks, honestly, because of the knowledge of anti-vaxxers, a lot of the real, true, hardcore anti-vaxxers, they don't go to doctors. They don't go to Western medicine. A lot of them will go see naturopaths. Um, A lot of them will go to other medical practitioners, Eastern medicine, things like that. So briefly, I want to ask you a little bit about children and COVID-19, because we've talked about vaccines. You've talked about evidence as when the vaccines were initially approved, we had three months of data. Now we have many more months of data. But for children, there's still a lot of unknowns. Is that correct? So that is correct. They started FDA trials on children in January. So that data we're not going to have until the summer. The earliest we could get any kind of information on vaccine approval for children would be in the fall. Anything we do for adults when we start going to the kid level is tested that much more rigorously because we don't want to harm children, thankfully. And I think, Michael, much to your point, people don't understand the rigors of going through FDA testing. They don't understand like there's phase one, there's phase two, there's phase three, there are four phases. There are all these trials. They have to have so much data from all these other places before you give and get to the human trials. And then you have to have the small batch and you have to have the larger batch. And in understanding that no child gets a vaccine that hasn't already been tested in a large population of adults. So there's all of this background stuff that people don't see. So since we're in maybe this waiting period, as we're waiting for more trials, more testing data, does this become an area that's ripe for parents to seek out maybe or be more susceptible to mis- and disinformation as a result of that uncertainty? And the stress is like, I have dogs, I don't have children. So I have different vaccine questions, which we have in another episode, but I can't imagine being a parent and wanting to keep my children safe. But now, okay, hold on, let's wait till the summer. So what do we do in the meantime? How do you combat misinformation with patients and help people live through this until we have better data? So I feel like the biggest thing that comes across with the kids is the school or not to school. The homeschool and, oh, Sally's been on homeschooling since like last spring. She tried it. It don't work. Like she is running all over the place. She needs to be in a classroom. Plus I can't stay home and work and keep take, keep care of Sally and like working and this that, and the other. The kid problem with COVID-19 is very fraught. And as we are in this, the biggest thing that I'm trying to encourage everybody is this ain't over. 
I know lots of people are like, hey, since COVID's going down, let's go hang out. Let's have a St. Patty's Day celebration. Let's start having meetings in person again. And I'm like, no, most of the people who are doing these things aren't vaccinated. Thankfully, the people who are most vaccinated right now are the people who are at higher risk. So our elderly and our frontline workers. But most folk are not vaccinated. Let's talk about how we can protect everyone still. And everyone, especially when we think about our children. I have a two-year-old. It is officially time for her to start wearing masks. I will tell you, I put a mask on her as we get into the grocery store, as we get out of the car, and in about five seconds, it is off of her face. She kept it on for a whole 15 minutes once when I took her to get my first COVID shot because I wanted her to see grownups get shots too. We get vaccines just like kids do. And she kept it on for 15 minutes and then it was off of her face and we haven't gotten anything that long since. So it's hard and it is frustrating, but you still want your children to be safe. We still know that kids are definitely, unfortunately, a big vector for having passing COVID along, especially having asymptomatic cases. And think about classrooms during cold and flu season. Good heavens. Like you knew if Jimmy was sneezing in the front row, everyone was going to be have that same cold. That classroom was done. So it's that much more now with this disease that rapidly spreads. We have variants that spread even faster. And so I do have a lot of patients who I talk to them about their children and mitigating risk. And it goes back to that individual thing. Okay. So you work at home and you want to send your kid to a daycare so that you can have your work hours actually be work hours and not hours that you're trying to chase after your kid. Who is in the daycare? Are people at the daycare wearing masks? How big is the daycare? Are they counting kids? Are they counting families? Is this a five family daycare or this is a five kid daycare? Because if it's just five kids from different households, that's five whole different households. If this is five kids from two households, you have a lot lower risk. And your breakdown of this looping back to Sean's question makes it sound like the biggest most dangerous piece of misinformation that can get out there right now while we're in this kind of ambiguous situation is that we're in the clear. Yeah, we are not in the clear. We are in no ways, zero ways are we in the clear. I guarantee you the people who are going and drinking for St. Patty's Day are not vaccinated as so many states are opening up and saying, yes, go back to in dining, eating and doing all this stuff. They're not vaccinated. Your waiters are not vaccinated. Your servers are not vaccinated. And as this happens, there's going to be a, a stronger push to start reducing those times where, oh, you're sick. Maybe you should go to work anyway. The, those types of things are going to start getting encroached upon again. That's how you get whole factories of people, whole restaurants of people ill. I see a really important technique that you're using. You're not necessarily offering your patients and people in the community a false sense of assurance. You're actually admitting this is really difficult. This is hard. This is hard for me. So you're, you're offering empathy and understanding and then being like, but wait, no, like we're not done yet. I have a hard time. You're having a hard time, but you're not done. Just sit with me through this. 
and we're going to make it through six more months and then it's going to get better. Yes, yes, it is. It is all about Americans really like to be individualistic and they have this persona of I can do it on my own. This is one of those few times when actually none of us can do it on our own. If I'm doing the right thing and I am protected, that still means like any one person around me who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing can still get me sick. I cannot tell you how many patients of mine right after the new year who were in situations where they thought they couldn't get sick, but got sick. And a lot of it is because they're like, we've been doing this for so long. We can lower our guards a little bit. We can have this little family party inside. We can do this little thing and people are getting ill. It is not over. I haven't seen my family either. My my family has not seen my two-year-old daughter since she was six months. I get it. I am right here with you. But the more we actually work together, if we actually just all did what we need to do, and there was no like one group of people going out and doing this anyway, if we actually all get together and do what we're supposed to do, we will actually be done with it. The more people are like, yeah, but I think I am going to take that vacation to Las Vegas. Well, you know, I think I am going to throw this party. I put my wedding on hold last year, but this year we're going to have this big, huge destination party. Like the more that happens, the longer this is going to be a thing. Yeah. And your emphasis on collective action here really sends home just how wonderful of a terrain this is for a misinformation attacker, right? Or even incidental misinformation, because the more divided or confused people are, the harder this is going to be. So just your description of the import of collective action and cooperation I think throws into relief just how appealing this is for for misinformation attacks. It's kind of like the end of Wonder Woman. I don't know if everyone watched Wonder Woman, but spoilers, skip the next 30 seconds if you don't want to be spoiled and you haven't watched it yet. But at the end of Wonder Woman, literally the entire world has to renounce their deepest wish. And I feel like that's where we are right now. We all have to renounce our deepest wish to go out and be with each other and do all these things and celebrate and give hugs. We all need to renounce that so that the world is not destroyed, literally. I still haven't seen Wonder Woman. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Is this going to be like a hate thing? Like you hate Jurassic Park 2? No, not at all. I think it's a brilliant point. And I'm happy to have Wonder Woman spoiled so that we can have this thought be one of our final thoughts. I think that's a great place to stop. It's been a lovely conversation, Dr. Chicago. I think we could have this conversation all day and keep going, but... Thank you for joining us. And thanks everyone for joining us for this session. Be well. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.